Hey, everybody. Quick announcement before we start the show. We've got an extra long, double-stuffed, uh, super-sized episode of Chapo coming at you real quick with the Blowback Boys. But we have another announcement. Will, how excited are you for our upcoming live show? Um, it sort of feels like I'm being, uh, I'm being born again. Born again of the new flesh in the new world um, that will have live concert events and podcast recordings available in our new flesh, our newly vaccinated flesh. That is right, everybody. We are playing a live show, and it is streaming to everyone online through a new platform called Frequency, F-R-Q-N-C-Y. This show is Saturday, June 5th, and it is part of an entire festival uh, that we are headlining in conjunction with, uh, put together by Dan Beckner, uh, past guest from Wolf Parade and the Bottleman podcast. We're playing as part of a lineup that includes us every time I die, which I know you're very excited to see. Uh, they fucking again. destroy. Oh my god! Yeah, you know, I mean, like I'm, I'm, an, I'm, I will venture into the pit for the every time I die show at, at uh, Frequency Fest. We hate movies. Zola Jesus, Tinder Live with Lane Moore, Pom Pom Squad, Stay Inside, Throwing Fits, The Downtown Boys, of course, our friends. Episode one, also yes, playing. Sir. Felix has told me what the pitch is for the episode yes. one show, and it sounds very <laughs> yeah. funny, not to miss. I, yeah, uh, I, know, I know what the episode one uh, is going to be about, and you're in, you're in for a treat if you like things that are happening in Felix's brain uh, of this past two weeks. But uh, I'm also very excited for the Chapo live show. We have something very fun uh, planned for our first live show back. It's going to be a very cool, fun live show that uh, even if you're not in Brooklyn, you can uh, see anywhere in the world. Live, See anywhere in the world. It's streamed live over frequency.live, F-R-Q-N-C-Y dot live. Pick up your tickets. They are just $15, and that gets you access to the whole day's events. Uh, five bands, five pods, and that pre-sale price is only good through this Saturday. Then the tickets are going to go up till $20. So go over to frequency.live. I'll have all the info in the episode description as well as a link to a Patreon post that describes the show a little more. Uh, this festival is going to be very cool, very special, and we are excited to be playing it. Uh, so I think that's enough of a pitch for today. Chapo is saving live music and comedy. Onward. Yes, we are. Onward, and here is the show. Ladies and gentlemen, it's blowback season two. It's back. More blows for the gang. Joining us. <laughs> Blowing in... out your back. Season two. <laughs> so the return of blowback means the return of punished producer Brendan James and Hi. Noah Colwyn. The blowback boys are in the house today. Gentlemen, this season, it's Cuba. Or Cuba, as you might say, after, after spending so much time studying this island nation, but 50 miles off the coast of Florida. Mm. The, yes. the other, the other, you know, a lot of people do, may not know about Cuba, like people who listen to our show, people who are younger. Uh, you probably know it as its other name, its name in Spanish, Puerto Rico. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is an important lesson before we dive into any specifics. So thank you, Felix, for that. Yeah, no, you're welcome. Well, I, I would like to uh, I'd like to begin uh, today's episode. 
by uh, sharing uh, just two tweets here from uh, a gentleman by the name of Bill Crystal. You may mm. remember him from such atrocities as the war in Iraq. But um, I'm going I'm to begin with these two tweets because I think it um, forms a, uh, a phantom thread uh, that connects blowback season one and two. So I'm just going to read here. This is courtesy of Bill Crystal uh, from just the other week. Uh, one reason I'm for D.C. statehood, the growth in size of the republic and our distinctive manner of growth, admitting states with equal status, has always been a sign of our vigor. 60 years at 50 states is enough. Time for D.C., Puerto Rico, Cuba, in parentheses, as soon as it's free, one or two more. <laughs> okay. And then the next one here is uh, he's, he's quote tweeting um, the announcement that Raul Castro uh, will be resigning as head of the Cuban Communist Party on the 72nd anniversary of Fidel Castro's admission that, according to this, what he had secretly always been a Marxist-Leninist and that Cuba was going to adopt communism. Uh, so mm. Bill Crystal here says... Straightforward from here, Castro, number one, Castro quits. Number two, we offer Cuba sanctions relief and investment contingent on political and economic liberty for the Cuban people. Number three, mm. free and fair elections are held. Number four, a free and democratic Cuba applies for U.S. statehood. Number five, El Estado de Cuba. Hey. So, that I mean, sounds great. Does Why are people ever- mad at him? <laughs> but what I gotta say is like this is this is Bill Crystal saying this, and he's saying this as part of his his current political project, which is you know been uh, parasitically grafted onto the Democratic Party for for their mm. benefit because of you know mm-hmm. DC statehood. But does it ever end for these people? It's been like you know uh, sixty seventy plus years now of basically war on Cuba and. You know, and then the, of which the war in Iraq was but one interlude in this like this unbroken chain of these same people um, yep. wanting to wanting to liberate uh, Cuba for the for yeah. the benefit of America. So I guess when I begin there, like, what do you, what's your reaction to Bill Crystal here? It's an interesting thing um, because if you go back as as we do uh, in our second episode, uh, where we kind of really start the the deep dive, the narrative, you can find almost the exact same language and sentiment in the 19th century uh, from Thomas Jefferson to uh, we have a quote from um, uh, uh, Noah. Who, who else did we quote in the beginning of the show? Oh, um, um, Stephen Douglas, John Quincy uh, Adams, John Quincy Adams from. Yeah. And, and of course, many people uh, occupying less powerful positions than them that wanted to just make Cuba part of the U S empire. And it was openly declared in that very 19th century way where there was not a concern about the niceties of ideas like sovereignty or national determination or independence. Um, Bill Crystal is one of those people who in 2021 operates off those same sort of uh, premises uh, without even trying to make it sound like, you know, we're looking to just collect more um, little uh, neo-colonies and imperial outposts. So it's, it's a weird thing to see after all this research especially into the early kind of lead up to the Cuban revolution to see such similar um, statements and ideas. Uh, But it's not even been 60 years, as you say, well, it's been really hundreds of years um, at this point of, of this desire to just scoop up that Island and do what we want with it. And with Cuba policy, the the name of the game in the U S is continuity, right? Like the current chair of the Senate foreign relations committee is Bob Menendez, Cuban American Democrat, and in the 1990s, he occupied the same position and he was able to, you know, throttle things uh, to such a degree in the you know, direction of the Cuba lobby 
Um, by, and by the Cuba lobby, I mean the people lobbying uh, uh, against normalization with Cuba. Um, he, you know, th- there's a lot of, I think, like, you know, small ways and big. And, you know, in, in terms of literal people, continuity from, you know, like five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, even. Um, the one thing I'll say also is that uh, one of the little historical tidbit, one of the exiles kind of of the white upper crust of Cuba, of Cuban society in the 19th century. Uh, many of those types of people were open to the idea of America annexing Cuba. It, it was seen as a far superior alternative to Spanish rule at that point by, again, this class of people. And one of the people who were uh, pushing it, who was pushing it, was quite literally the guy who invented the phrase manifest destiny. Um, so Cuba is both, you know, um, in rhetoric and in in material history, connected to all of these ideas. But I mean, ever since the the Cuban Revolution, like with Fidel Castro, and you know, like a, the Cuba being a, a communist state, I mean, it's just uh, it has been a um, an obsession of like the the U.S. like intelligence and national security and State Department, like community, whatever you want to call them. I mean, this has mm-hmm. been a thorn in our side now for. A long time and it's just like I, th- I think more than anything like the the crimes of the cuban revolution are the fact that it succeeded yep you're not allowed to do that uh revolutions are supposed to be successful and then immediately betrayed by their by their leaders uh and and become communist or whatever so that they're bad and then we need to go back in and and correct them and save them and and that was not allowed to happen in the case of cuba and uh the dry run for the Bay of Pigs was really the coup in Guatemala in 1954, only a couple years earlier, in which the CIA successfully overturned a really just left-leaning government that was looking to distribute a little bit more land to the long-suffering peasants and, and workers of the country. And so when the Cuban Revolution happened, the American government thought, well, we'll just do that again. And the same, literal, this, literally the same people were involved, Alan Dulles, Richard Bissell, they had all, they, they had all you know, gotten the band back together from Guatemala, and it didn't work in Cuba. So then even more insidious plans, as people will, of course, hear on the show, and I think a lot of people are vaguely aware, even more insidious and f- sort of further reaching things were designed because, as you point out, well, it was, especially for the Kennedy brothers in particular, like on a personal level, it was humiliating that this revolution would not go away and that it would not simply um, seed the ground as everyone is expected to do once the United States says it's time to, it's time to stop. Well, you mentioned that like on, on the, like the, the immediate aftermath of the Cuban revolution, not even Eisenhower believed Castro to be a communist, but like, you know, that, that, that doesn't really matter when it comes to us like policy and planning. Right. I mean, the the thing that ultimately sort of pushes the U.S. towards the like, def, you know, definitively pushes uh, the United States government over the course of 1959 and 1960 from, you know, sort of this like, you know, kind of lukewarm uh, perspective on uh, the Castro uh, on, on Castro himself and the July 26th movement um, to just firmly against the revolution is the fact that the revolution starts to get serious about the things that will benefit the Cuban people, um, you know, chief among them land reform, which involves nationalizing lots of, you know, like property across the island, including holdings, you know, vast holdings of American companies like, you know, United Fruit, for example, which, uh, you know, is another throwback because uh, United Fruit was one of the parties interested in the Guatemalan revolution uh, a decade earlier. Here's what I would say about about that, an idea of 
particularly Fidel's personal ideology and how any of the communism um, rumors factored in. I think, I mean, Raul Castro, his brother, was by all accounts uh, definitely a communist at yes. that point. Che Guevara was uh, an identified Marxist. Uh, he he integrated into like the proper communist party relatively late, but he, he identified as a communist. Fidel played things very close to the chest. I don't know if it's totally important whether or not you can pinpoint when he, you know, fully matured into communism or not. Um, he certainly wasn't broadcasting himself as one and in fact was telling people he wasn't one. But the communists were a good, you know, portion of the people fighting with the Fidelistas at the end of the victory of the revolution. And I think more significantly, whether or not Castro was secretly a communist or even if others around him were communists, which they were, that wasn't like made up by the CIA. It was the fact that the Soviet Union, uh, this world communism, capital C communism, um, which in present company, I think we can agree was not uh, the demonic force that the Americans thought it was at the time. Regardless of that, it was not involved in the Cuban Revolution. There was not a Soviet intelligence officer sent to Cuba until late 1959, a guy named Alexei Aksiev. And he got there and said, I don't know what the fuck's going on. And Moscow was actually very cautious uh, in dealing with the early days of the Cuban Revolution because they didn't really know uh, what was it going to turn out socialist? Was it going to be like too um, ambitious as a socialist project? This stuff was completely irrelevant to the Americans in the months before, before any Soviet official was even on the island. Because what, what, they, what they knew, whether or not Moscow would become closer to Cuba or not, was that the Cubans had liberated themselves from being a, an American neo-colony, and they were starting to do, as Noah mentioned, land reform. And alongside of that, they could you know, smell it in the air that there were a lot of other things probably coming down the pike in which the government of Fidel Castro and the, his fellow revolutionaries they would not play ball. I mean, they left Guantanamo there because if they tried to, you know, um, attack Guantanamo, they would have been obliterated, obviously. But they they were in almost every other area. They were proving themselves not one of the American lackeys or scumbags that had been president or premier in Cuba for decades and decades until the revolution. I mean, I, I, ironically, you say that Castro wouldn't play ball. But when indeed he could play ball. In fact, ball was life for Castro. And I'm talking about baseball, I, folks. Baseball. I misspoke. I misspoke. He, I think he also. I think he also had some basketball. He could hoop. Um, he could hoop. He could, he could, he could hoop. Pitch. But he yeah. was a he was a prospect for. I think like there's a thing. About I think it's the Pittsburgh like Pirates. Pirates. Yeah. 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 He was a pitching pitching prospect for the Pirates. I mean, I, like he's look. He's I'm I I believe that he was absolutely better than I ever could be at pitching baseball. But I don't think he could have gone pro. Just just having looked at the tape, uh, <laughs> he wasn't like a Trump. <laughs> no, he no, wasn't like a Donald Trump. Noah broke down the scouting tape on Fidel yeah, Castro. Yeah, no, I, like, there's no, like, there's no I, way he's getting in the majors without. No, one. like I, I'm sorry. Some of us care about the baseball almanac or, or whatever, you know. I was I, I was hard at work at the season, and Noah was like, "Yeah, I'm doing research," and he was just watching, <laughs> yeah. just breaking yeah, and all I'm just this like down. making like like I'm telling you that like I'm reading, and it's just like spreadsheets <laughs> and spreadsheets of like Cuban baseball leagues from 1955. Yeah, it pissed me off a little bit, but okay, so. We, we, so there's this moment of like the, the Cuban Revolution is victorious and it mm -hmm. uh, immediately catches off guard both the United States government, uh, the Soviet Union. But mm -hmm. I mean, what, like, what did that mean? Like immediately dealing with the reality of this for U.S. policy planners and but like also for the people of Cuba themselves? Like what, like what did the Cuban Revolution mean for them practically when it happened? 
Well, immediately after the revolution, there was still this kind of afterglow in which there was no open class conflict that was kind of on the agenda. Um, there were bourgeois, you know, elements that had wanted Batista gone uh, and they wanted, you know, honest government, honest business, a lot of kind of liberal bromides. Um, and they started to get them to their discomfort because, uh, you know, the most extreme example of cleaning up the uh, the the sort of business or or um, entrepreneurs in Cuba involved cleaning up the casino and hotel scene that was run largely by elements of the American mafia, as everyone knows. This will become a major thread in American history. Pay attention. We we will get to that. Yeah. Don't forget this detail about uh, who was kicked out of Cuba and what was one of the major outside of like, you know, very, very valuable like crops like fruit and sugar and coffee and things like that. The other major industry was, of course, uh, tourism, i.e. gambling, prostitution and organized crime getting sugar uh yeah so it was it was it was a scene in which uh, there's sometimes it's exaggerated it's a little caricature that like all of batista's government revenue was mafia stuff it wasn't just that there his his government itself was a racket yeah exactly but but the mafia was deeply deeply involved in building up um the revenue base in in havana in in particular and there were favors done really even before batista if people don't know Fulgencio batista was the dictator in power um by the time of the cuban revolution but there have been lots of scumbags some of them were more um you know the, uh in liberal garb others were just as brutal as batista like a guy named geraldo machado in in the 30s uh but all this is to say well that this um uh, out with the old in with the new was was very um was very kind of oceanic and everyone at first felt like great we're going to get you know uh liberal civil rights we're going to get um uh, fair fair decent government that started to complicate in the early months of 1959 because you had basically a, an increasing fork in the road between more radical or if you like you know nationalistic left-leaning nationalistic people like Castro or full-on communists or socialists like Raul or Che or people in the Cuban Communist Party who were saying, um, we need to really make a clean break and we need to do land reform, which will take away um, the property and the revenue streams for a lot of American bigwigs. And they will be angry about that. We will offer them compensation, but we will not give them this land, which is being squatted on and, and just, you know, obviously they were just rent-seeking uh, psychos who were exploiting our country. There were a lot of moderates in the government who had fought against Batista. Um, some of them were military commanders. Some of them were um, respectable politicians who said, uh, I don't know about this. We're going to we're going to get a lot of um, nasty um responses from the americans if we start to carry this stuff out and, and, and that's that and that's an important point to uh that's an important point to sit with for a moment because for example in guatemala one of the things that the cia um you know really overestimated going into their whole like you know like as, as what brendan sort of describing what amounts to the american government's response in early 1960 in january of 1960 the plan that will ultimately become the bay of pigs invasion gets set in motion And the model that they were working from was this model in Guatemala. And what allowed them to succeed in Guatemala, as the uh, historian Pajaro Glahesis sort of points out, was not that the U.S. had, you know, created this really successful, uh, 
you know, band of counter-revolutionaries or, or revolutionaries really to fight back against um, Arbenz's government. It was that the psychological warfare that they had so thoroughly, um, like, you know, uh, eliminated any morale or will to fight for the Guatemalan government on behalf of its soldiers that it, it, it collapsed. So the, the sense of, you know, I think what these moderates were sort of referencing or feeling, it's a sentiment that sort of, you know, is, is the, it's the decisive sentiment, I would argue, in, in, and I think uh, Glahesis definitely argues, in the failure of Guatemala before. So it's a really sort of, you know, critical fork in the road as to whether or not the Cuban revolution can live or die. In other words, you can draw two lessons from Guatemala. I'm not saying this is exactly how they were discussing it, but you had the radicals saying, uh, or you had the moderates saying, look what happened there. Arbenz, the president of Guatemala, wasn't even particularly, you know, died in the wool communist and the Americans overthrew him. We don't want to risk that, lose all the gains we've made by getting rid of Batista, which everyone agreed was a good thing in progress. The radicals were more saying, well, wh why don't we get to a position where we don't even have to worry about what America thinks or wants to do? Because if we if we stay in that position, we'll never make any real gains for our country. And, you know, I think history would probably give them the edge. And so what what starts to happen and culminates in May of 1959 is land reform is passed. And that means that these more ambitious and increasingly um, openly socialist elements of the revolution win. And but that also causes the moderates to become one of the first waves of counter revolutionaries to say, well, this is all being uh, somehow run by Moscow, even though, as we said, the Soviets weren't even there yet. And then you start to see a more divisive character to the revolution that probably was, I mean, it had to happen. And so to answer That's your, your thing about Cruz's the early dad days. had to leave, right? Yeah, exactly. People like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, so he could go and kill JFK. Oops, sorry. Oh, Spoiler alert. Whole season. Ah, shit. But, but also, um, but so, so then at that point, we're starting to talk about a... Um, a, a a clear straight line toward a more um, openly ideological and left-wing revolution. But it's not that really even the radicals wanted that. They were not claiming to be building a communist island in the Caribbean um, in, in those early days. Uh, so whether or not they would have gotten there more gradually, we'll never know because um, there was just such a violent reaction, literal reaction, forces of reaction against even a relatively tepid land reform. Yeah, I mean, you keep using the phrase land reform. And like anytime yeah. that anytime those two words pop up together, like someone in Langley or Foggy Bottom, no matter what level they are in these departments, is like like, 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 a, like a siren is blaring wherever they see it. And like yeah. it's, 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 it, that that was the case. I mean, we like it became locked into this like inevitable cycle of reaction and like the planning for a, a war that like everybody thought was going to come. And like, you know, I mean, certainly. I mean, to, to, like, to discuss this in, in light of the fact that whenever the Cuban Revolution or Fidel Castro is discussed in this country, it's almost always within the context of, like, even if it's, like, liberals being like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I kind of agree with certain things, but I think we can all agree, like, all of his horrible political repression and imprisoning and torturing and execution of dissidents in his own country is, you know, so awful that we can't uh, abide even the, um, the victories or successes of, of his revolution. I mean... Mm -hmm. It's just that, like all, all this violence or repression or whatever, whatever I mean, however you want to look at it, has to it has to be understood and take place in the context of which, from the absolute beginning of all of this, the, the, this relatively small and poor nation was immediately in the crosshairs of like probably one of the biggest, most well organized and most violent force of counter revolution and 
you know, a war, essentially, from, from the very yes. beginning. We obviously, our show focuses on the first several years after the success of the revolution in 59. So we're looking at that um, initial stretch, the origins of this, of this covert war that still goes on. And I, I don't want to speak, obviously, for anybody. It's a, it's a key part of our show that we, we don't want to be claiming to speak for anybody. We interview many guests who are from Cuba, who live in Cuba, many of whom were there for the revolution. We'll let them speak for themselves about what they feel about you know, the political situation uh, in Cuba, I would argue it's heavily caricatured in the United States. Uh, You could run through any litany of things that probably a lot of Chapo listeners know about how we are the uh, biggest incarcerator of anybody on the planet. And it's fairly rich to be saying that Cuba is some kind of horrifying nightmare compared to the United States. We can leave all that aside for now. If you look at, as you say, well, why there might have been such a um, result, Castro was not even particularly gung-ho about clamping down on counter-revolutionary elements. The, it, it was really the Soviets, perhaps, perhaps from some experiences, experiences of their own, in 1961, really, even in, in, into 60, he was still um, uh, trying to uh, resist this. They started to say, look, you either got to do this or get ready to pack your bags because they are coming for you. And they were right. And so we can talk about in a totally different context what that means today. And a lot of people like to skip all of this stuff. But I think what we're trying to do, one of the things we're trying to do with the show is definitely provide the context in which some of that stuff happens. And I would still argue it's caricatured by American commentators. I mean, we play a lot of Jake Tapper in that first episode because he won't shut the fuck up. Um, Even in just a introduction to a guest, I think it was Raphael Warnock, he's browbeating him on how uh, his church in the 90s invited Castro to speak. Let me, let me ask you about one of those attacks, because um, Senator Leffler keeps mentioning on the campaign trail an incident from 1995, when you were a youth pastor at a New York church, which hosted a speech by Fidel Castro. Now, you've said you had nothing to do with that invitation, but just to clarify for our viewers, did you attend the speech and do you understand why there are so many people who view Castro as a, as a murderous tyrant and, and not someone to be celebrated? Without even bothering to maybe ask, why, why would it be that a black church in America would invite Castro Also, to I'm pretty sure um, Fidel Castro was going to speak there, you know, as part of the, you know, celebration of Fidel's visit to Harlem previously in 1960 that, like, was, you know, like, sent shockwaves uh, throughout, like, the third world and throughout black America. Um you know, yeah, he, like sh- he shined of- a light on on conditions on, of inequality in America by doing that. Right, which is a you know detail listeners will hear about in in the show um, about uh, the significance of Fidel's stay in Harlem in '60 um, during the UN General Assembly. To, to also add on on to Brendan's point, I guess I'd also like to say that the um, one of the things that's like you know sort of really underplayed about this is just how much of it is all still ongoing. Like, yeah, you can book a direct flight from JFK to Havana now, and you couldn't do that a decade ago. But at the same time, the embargo, which has been in place in 62, is still ongoing. And as for, you know, these, you know, sort of like, you know, questions about like, well, why is it that they don't have the same rules around free speech that we do? Well, you know, to give you one example about the kinds of stuff that our government continues to do to destabilize uh, foreign governments, the State Department uh, during the Trump years put together this white paper that was, you know, like the state of human rights and the state of liberty or or whatever in, in Cuba in 2020. And so it was assembled by the Trump administration. That much we know. But it was released by the Biden administration. They chose to release it in, in, uh, in March, at the end of March. And this white paper is just filled with, like, you know, like a lot of, like, you know, like very specific 
um, you know, sort of like specific details and incidents um, that are often sourced back to from, you know, news outlets like, for example, Cubanet, which happens to be a nonprofit news website funded by the National Endowment for Democracy, which, you know, is the U.S. government. So there's like a degree to which we are continuing to wage psyops, whether or not we call them something else now is, you know, a different story. But we're doing the same thing 60 years later. And it's Mm -hmm. been an unbroken line with just varying degrees of intensity. So like so so for the the moment the revolution happened, like, I mean, and then even before that, Cuba had always been like a, a, a choice jewel in the, you know, U.S. empire. And ever since the revolution happened, it has been the subject of an intense covert war. Uh, can you talk about how all of that got ramped way the fuck up when what we call the Cuban Missile Crisis happens? But mm. uh, they, they, they they call it what is it? You said it, they call it the Caribbean Crisis. The Soviets, yeah, the Soviets, the, the Soviets called, it the, called it the Caribbean Crisis, at least in several sources that I saw. Because, and this is an interesting thing to break down, not not to read too much into it, but I think it's it's an obvious point of interest that they each side calls it something different. We call it the Cuban Missile Crisis because. There you go. You got the blame right in the name. Cubans, missiles, the Soviets, crisis. The Soviets call it the Caribbean crisis because for them, and I would argue this hems to the narrative of our show a bit more, the crisis doesn't start magically in the year of 1962 when suddenly there are missiles there. It starts back when the Americans were beginning to cause a ruckus in the Caribbean because of the Cuban revolution, engaging in terrorism against Cuba, engaging in, as we said, psychological operations and attempted invasion just the year before um, and so forth. And that was really the beginning of a crisis that began to escalate things, not the decision of, say, Nikita Khrushchev to send defensive weapons to Cuba. Finally, the Cubans uh, pretty much tend to call it, in, in most sources, the October crisis. And I mean, one way you could read that is that it was really just one of many crises every every month that they could identify since coming under the fire of the Americans after their revolution. So, yes, it's, I think uh, that tells you a bit already about you know, our idea of an objective sense of what the missile crisis was. But even before the crisis, what kind of precipitates it is Operation Mongoose. Cloak and dagger stuff, you know, they called it Operation Mongoose. And I don't want to spell too much out before our show um, has the chance to, but Mongoose and the unprecedented level of CIA, State Department and, you know, just executive branch coordination in trying to topple another government, particularly one so close geographically to America, it, it was telegraphing that another invasion was coming. Uh, and, and, you know, they were trying other things. They were trying to decapitate the revolution through assassinations. They were trying to, um, maybe cause a mass uprising, although no one really believed that was going to happen. Um, well after the, the, the honeymoon period that we described earlier, most of the population still overwhelmingly supported the revolution. Um, of course, most of all the peasants and uh, the workers. So, you know, but there was still hope held out that there would be an uprising against, against the revolutionary government. That is the proper context in which to understand why there was a buildup to a nuclear confrontation in the fall of 1962. And also that, you know, there the idea of nuclear brinkmanship as like, you know, geopolitical strategic policy was something that the Americans, you know, first did. Like it's something that we set in motion in I mean, August we, of we moved the battery of Jupiter missiles to Turkey, which was about right. as many I mean, miles well, so, away from the Soviet border as Cuba was from the American. 
Absolutely. But I would even argue, you know, like the historian Marty Sherwin, who we interview in our show, um, he makes a really good point that, you know, you go back even further and it's you look at and and, and there are um, Japanese and American historians who've basically come to the same conclusion, which is that, like, you look at what happened in August of 1945, which is that, you know, America drops one atomic bomb. Stalin declares war on Japan to, you know, go ahead and invade and thus neutralize this, you know, what would otherwise have been a very effective anti-communist outpost um in, in their view and then the next day the americans drop another bomb and japan does an unconditional surrender and so what the americans had showed is that they were the one government they are the only government in history that has been willing to use um nuclear weapons to achieve policy ends with their detonation and you know what was the cause that they motivated that was motivating them it wasn't beating the nazis it wasn't you know making sure it wasn't defeating the Japanese in any meaningful sense. It was ultimately about preventing and defeating communism. And that is like, you know, that animating thrust. I mean, when you think about then you get to a moment in 1962 where the Americans are ready to invade Cuba or something. I think it's, you know, that 17 year trajectory is, is something that also often goes really under examined and that we're, we're, I'm really glad that we'll get to talk about a bit later on. Well, I mean, okay. So, like you said, like this is a, this is a cascading series of crises, you know, invented by America and directed at mm. Cuba and the Cuban people. Mm. And you know, just but one year before, you bring up, they called it Operation Mongoose. Operation Mongoose, which we have uh, alluded to many times on the show. But like, this is just shorthand for what would become the Bay of Pigs and what would become something much. It's like a stand-in for something much, much bigger in American history, of which Cuba only plays like sort of a like an inciting role, but an ancillary one. Like, what was it about the Bay of Pigs and the failure of the Bay of Pigs that became such this such a baroque part of like the CIA's own internal mythology? I mean, it's a scary spiral to go into, of course, because there is a mythology I pr probably within the agency, both its liberal elements and its more right wing elements um, that, of course, they had prepared this invasion. And if only Kennedy had called in the second airstrike, this kind of fabled um, element of the invasion that we'll get into on the show. Um, it doesn't really matter uh, really for the purposes of this discussion what that means. There was a, a big chickening out by the, by the Kennedy brothers um, and ever after the idea that covert operations needed to be a lot larger in scope, needed to be better funded, needed to be um, to have greater autonomy and greater secrecy uh, whenever there was oversight. Um, this is also around the time that we we leave almost a, a, a comparatively um, sort of, I don't know what to call it, earlier, even naive era to move in, you know, from the Richard, the, the Richard um, Bissell zone and the Alan Dulles zone into the Richard Helms zone, because what came after, you know, uh, the failure of the Bay of Pigs was the beginning of an entirely new level of CIA um, uh, shenanigans all over the world. And uh, and I think that the Bay of Pigs was that inciting incident because it was such a spectacular and public Humiliation, not only for the individuals involved, whether they were in the CIA or not. Adlai Stevenson famously was made a fool of at the UN because he was insisting uh, that the Cubans were were telling tall tales, and then, of course, the entire world saw that that was a lie. Um, but but that it was such a public humiliation really meant that I think um, 
the Defense Department, the CIA, the State Department, all of them realized that they had to play it much meaner and much more deadly uh, and, and not let anything like this ever happen again. So Mongoose came after the Bay of Pigs, um, but it, it was that answer to the Bay of Pigs that then mutates into just the way of doing business in general, which is, you know, a really truly global scale of, of covert war and uh, resort to anything uh, that gets the job done to p- destroy any alternative to American dominated, you know, international capitalism running at each and every country. We can we can try to get it. And in this during this time, you know, the Cuba as like a specific department, you know, it's viewed as the hotbed of Castroism or of, of communism that in the form of Castroism is going to get exported to the rest of Latin America. And so there is this enormous sort of concerted effort to um, like, I guess, to, you know, kind of the part of the way that they go about, um, I think, kind of containing Castro and containing uh, containing this whole scourge is by making Cuba present everywhere. Right. So, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I learned, for example, in reading through a lot of the um, writings of CIA officials and other historians of the period was that there were um, Cuba case officers stationed at CIA stations all around the world. And it was because, you know, so you would, you know, you'd have a CIA station chief in Germany would have had somebody specifically dealing with Cuba stationed there. And it's a sort of sign that both how I think, you know, it's a sign of how seriously they were taking Cuba um, and how much they wanted to stop Cuba directly. But it's also a sign of how fearful they were um, or, you know, how fearful they made themselves be over the possibility that Cuba could, you know, quote unquote, infect other things. And thus it was a scourge that had to be stopped. Like a contagion sort of thing. Now, I mean, like, and thinking of you know the 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 incidents of like the the Bay of Pigs and then the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you know, as it relates to the Kennedy brothers, who are certainly like you know no two great heroes in this story or anything like that. But what did they, what did they see with their own eyes as regards the conduct of their own generals, State Department, and intelligence agencies during these two events that sort of. Uh, I don't know, shape their perception of this of this beast at the heart of American power that is something that is not entirely in the control of, you know, the commander in chief, shall we say. Without, uh, you know, giving too much away, I think that one of the things that is really, really interesting about an episode like the missile crisis is that it is, you know, like as Britain sort of says in, our, in episode one, like it's it's you know, it's it's probably not a good idea to reduce history to like a collage of event of, you know, discrete events and individuals. But there are moments in which all of a sudden, like you have things come to a head and individual personalities and individual characters can actually matter a great deal. And I think one of the things that is very interesting about JFK is how it shows about what happens, how even an American government, uh, what happens when somebody who, um, you know, possesses an individual character unlike that of the people who came before him or who is placed in a situation where, you know, he realizes the advice that he's getting is so shitty that uh, perhaps he's got to have a different idea. Um, And I think that that to me is sort of like was, you know, the the thing that I learned and was most interested in um, in engaging with this stuff during that period was like sort of learning about how those, you know, at least as it relates to the personality of those two guys. Uh, Bobby's a little more nuts and 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 kind of uh, in his own special way. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I I struggle with exactly how to um, characterize the Kennedys in this story, because I I don't think it's it's a smart thing to take the narrative that the CIA is a rogue agency 
and that we just, you know, it's a government within a government and that the U.S. policy would be pretty good and humane if it weren't for the CIA. And that's and that's the real secret that everyone needs to understand. I don't think that's true. I'm persuaded that, you know, the CIA is perhaps a um, entitled and bratty, but ultimately subservient arm of the U.S. government, just like it says it is. Um, and so when you have it, you still at, at the same time, you have an issue where clearly John Kennedy was um, increasingly isolated, even as the president, from the agenda of the rest of his his government, at least the part of his government that decides the real stuff. And the CIA was certainly a very, very, very important uh, group that he had alienated. So it's it's not to to give JFK some kind of heroic or even sympathetic uh, sheen, but you do want to understand conflicts within the ruling class. You know, you do want to understand conflicts within the kind of upper crust of an empire, and and exactly what these small, even small differences are, and, and how it can know, result. You know, and to give one example, like you know, it's 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 been fairly, you know, people have I think pretty fairly decently established that um, Joe Kennedy had points in one of the same Havana hotels as Sam Giancana. And um, or one of the other uh, mob figures there. But the thing is, is like that's not necessarily by itself something that should be taken as like, you know, like part of the 40 chess game of the situation or whatever. But to what Brendan says about like a ruling class that like this is actually like a fairly expansive cast of characters and people who often do have conflicting and overlapping with, you know, material interests. And that isn't worth like, you know, being like, ah, bah humbug or, or hand waving. If anything, I think it's worth, you know, sort of confronting head on. Well, I mean, you mentioned Sam Giancana, but I mean, as it relates to the CIA, I mean, like, you know, we're, we're not the first people to make this observation, but like you, you mentioned, they're sort of like a, a bratty but still subservient, you know, part of what is the apparatus of like U.S. state power. And, mm-hmm. you know, if they weren't there, you know, what, what it would take its place would not necessarily be, you know, humane or, uh, shall we say, accommodating to economic systems uh, <laughs> that run contrary to capitalism. But mm-hmm. what it does provide is like a an institutional format through which basically organized crime can take place and organized yes. crime that's controlled by, you know, America's wasp elite our, our America's <laughs> ruling class. Like and then yes. and then is subcontract subcontracted out to people like Sam Giancana, like the well, actual organized crime or what we think of as like the mob. But like the CIA uh, is really just the American government's mafia, basically. Yeah, this would be a good drop. Uh, Chris, of the time Tony Soprano goes on the rant about how the Carnegies and the Rockefellers, they need a worker bees, and there we were. But some of us didn't want to swarm around their hive and lose who we were. We wanted to stay Italian and preserve the things that meant something to us, honor and family and loyalty. And some of us wanted a piece of the action. Um, But yeah, yeah. I mean, organized crime, we're really not touching on this is I feel like I'm I'm um, style biting the Chrisman um, uh, zone here because you guys have talked a lot about how the CIA is essentially one and the same with organized crime. Uh, There's a reason that you find them interacting so much in, in episodes like this because they both operate on the same principles. They both are unaccountable and they are both friends to the people on the quote right side of the law um, to a degree far, far more than I think, you know, a lot of um, media or culture tends to, tends to show us. And um, what what better example of that than the time that the government, which was not just the CIA, Kennedy knew that we were working with um, 
Giancana. Uh, his brother certainly knew because his brother was directly his brother was directly briefed on it. I actually interviewed um, Bob Blakey, who was uh, worked directly under Robert Kennedy and was later the chief counsel for the House Select Committee uh, investigation into the King assassination. And he was, you know, his the way he described it to me was that like when you know he would have never known that RFK knew like you know was doing all this other like mongoose stuff and plotting. When he learned and he was present for uh, telling him uh, that, you know, Giancana had been involved in you know, with the CIA plotting or whatever. You know, there's a real it is like a there is something very funny to, to all of that. And it contaminated uh, Bobby Kennedy in particular. It, it contaminated his role as, uh, you know, chief lawyer um, as attorney general, because th- there was um, a very embarrassing episode in which the FBI found out about a lot of the CIA stuff with the mob. And J. Edgar Hoover told Bobby Kennedy, uh, you know, I'm, I'm finding a lot of these organized crime figures that you say you want to get out of labor. I'm finding that some of them have been, you know, interviewed by your office in, <laughs> in, uh, in, in a kind of um, job interview situation for uh, taking out a certain leader of a certain country. And uh, Kennedy was furious, but it didn't mean that he wasn't still interested in essentially carrying out that, that, that agenda. He just, as um, any, you know, spoiled rich kid, you know, w- wouldn't want. He didn't want to be made to look like uh, a fool in front of all of his new kind of fancy, powerful friends. So um, there's a very s- sort of strange and ultimately kind of baffling relationship uh, when it comes to the Kennedys and the rest of this this uh, effort to to topple the Cuban Revolution. Well, I mean, that that that's that's one side of of this story, which is like how the, this covert war on Cuba, as far as like the American Empire goes, took on a life of its own and became a, a kind of stand-in for, you know, the entire Cold War itself, and like this something mm. something evil at the heart of America, and also, but like here's the thing, as far as Cuba goes, like all their clownish assassination attempts and like you know counter revolutions or whatever, none of them fucking worked. Like they yes. they were all an embarrassment to America and like didn't stop them from trying, but this has been like you said been going on sixty seventy years now. From the other side of the story, it's a story of uh, success and victory <laughs> over America and the CIA. So to get into that side of the story, you guys mm. did talk to a lot of uh, Cubans who were you know either a part of the revolution or you know just living in Cuba today. Like, what mm-hmm. does the Cuban Revolution mean to some of the guests that you interviewed for this show? Well, I, I would say that, um, for example, one of the guests, our friend Marta, um, she it was fascinating hearing her speak about it because it's honestly not even something she told us that she's had to think a lot about. It's obviously been uh, part of her DNA since since the time she was a little girl when the revolution happened. She just grew up um, thinking of it much like any person in any country thinks about what why they're proud to be, you know, from wherever they're from. Uh, with that said, she's also an incredibly intelligent, you know, sociologist and, and can put a lot of this stuff in, in into an interesting uh, way of thinking about it. So she she told us that once the honeymoon period that we described was over, she realized that the enemy of the Cuban revolution was the main enemy was starting to become the United States and someone who would come as she did from a middle-class background had listened to, you know, American culture and seen American movies and kind of was being brought up to be a Cuban American, Cuban hyphen American. If, even if she didn't live in America, it changed her entire view of what America was just as anyone reckons with the, 
with the reality of the difference between America's rhetoric and its, its symbolism and what it actually stands for in the world when the chips are down. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, she's one example where she threw herself into the revolution. She was not... Um, from a, uh, a particularly humble background. She was middle, solidly middle-class professional. Her family didn't own property, but they had the, the university educations and the titles. And um, she, she did not leave, like many people of her class. She stayed and became a lifelong revolutionary. And a big part of that was, you know, recognizing that this was something that was doing a great deal of good for the masses. This was something that was hated by America, not because it was crushing freedom, but because it was cutting into, you know, the bottom line and things like that. And Fidel Castro and and his brother and the revolutionaries and other revolutionaries like Celia Sanchez and Heidi Santa Maria and other other figures of the revolution, they're thought of, as you would expect, as founding fathers, if you like, founding fathers and mothers and people. And instead of front-loading all of the mistakes or all of the shortcomings, as we do here, as you'd expect, they, they tend to front-load the successes and the achievements. And it's, it's, it's bizarre to them. We've shown them the episodes ahead of time. And they, uh, for example, Marta likes how we kind of start to chip away slowly at the caricature and make, hopefully make people understand more and more why that is just completely alien to someone, not everybody, but to, to, I would say, most people who have lived and breathed the history of Cuba over the past 60 years. Um, and so she's just one example. Part of that caricature is this notion that, you know, Cuba to, to this day is a, like a uniquely impoverished and unfree mm. country because of the Cuban Revolution. But mm -hmm. I mean, like that, that's I mean, it is still, you know, by, you know, by comparison. Yeah, a pretty poor country. But like mm -hmm. in terms of the successes of the Cuban Revolution, I mean, compare the average standard of living or education, uh, or and, and or healthcare, for instance, of the average Cuban person to the you know comparable countries in our in the Western Hemisphere that have been you know successfully subverted by U.S. policy. Mm -hmm. I, I think um, <laughs> to take it one step further. Um, I mean, yes, we do try to uh, touch on in the first episode uh, the data points you don't often hear discussed in reference to Cuba, because, in fact, the World Food Program of the U.N., uh, you know, has reported that the revolutionary programs did a lot to combat hunger and poverty. This actually, I think they say they virtually eliminated it. That doesn't mean that everyone's dining out all the time on five course meals, of course, because it is still a poor country. We like to investigate why it has um, had such a hard time developing. The, the, the embargo from what was once Cuba's largest trading partner might have something to do with it. The covert war that has tried to undermine um, the Cuban economy for 60 years in more violent ways might have something to do with that as well. Um, but even with all that said and done, we thought about doing this, and I, I think we can say now that we're probably not going to do it. Um, we thought about doing a bonus episode, not only about um, the Guatemalan coup and how that happened and how it was kind of a prelude to Cuba as a story, but I was going to do an episode about what happened in Guatemala after the coup and wh what happens in a country where the U.S. gets its way. And what happens when there is an inc incredibly pro-American, freedom-loving government or whatever in power? And, I mean, the, the gruesome history of what happened in Guatemala once uh, something that was even more tepid than the Cuban Revolution was cast away is a, is a genocide yeah. of 200,000 people, chiefly, chiefly indigenous people of Guatemala, and um, a, a nonstop cycle of violence that is, did not conclude 
vaguely speaking, until until the uh, 90s, and even now is suffering all kinds of horrible um, after effects. That is something that did that could not happen in Cuba because of the revolution. And then people want to talk about how there were some political prisoners in Cuba while they was under attack by the United States for 60 years. I mean, the 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 idea that that was somehow a nightmarish totalitarian country with Guatemala, one of the most pro-American regimes in history, uh, just around the corner is an insult to people's intelligence. And and I think that, like, you know, like, why does the insult persist then? Right. Like if, if you know, if that's the case, and I think in part it's because, you know, much as it might sadden me to say, but I think that, like, people have repeated a lie about the fundamental character and nature of the Cuban revolution for so many years in our media, in mainstream politics, that they've come to internalize it so fully. And I think that, like, you know, breaking the kayfabe, um, you know, not dissimilar to Israel lobby conversations in my experience. I found I found Cuban-American diaspora politics and, 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 and Israel diaspora politics to be fairly similar in this way, um, you know, I think that a lot of people are just there. There's like an incredible resistance to conceding. Not only were we wrong, we took the side of the bad guys. In fact, some of us may have been the bad guys. And that's a, that's a, it's a bitter pill to swallow. Yeah. Well, I mean, to bring it all to the, the present moment. And, and as we started talking about, like, you know, this, this unbroken continuity in U.S. policy towards Cuba that sur- surpasses party. And it certainly surpasses Donald Trump to Joe Biden. Because, like, you know, like you know what you mentioned at the top about, you know, like these ongoing efforts to essentially propagandize and subvert and, you know, wage covert war on Cuba economically or otherwise remain unabated. And, like, the, the, the main centerpiece of that is this, this embargo, is the sanctions that, that Cuba um, continues to live under. And, by the way, continues to live under after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the, ni- in mm-hmm. like the, the, the early 90s. Because, like, I mean, that, the Soviet Union was their biggest economic partner. I mean, like, they, they, like, the trade with the Soviet Union was, like, all they had. And when the Soviet mm-hmm. Union collapsed, it's actually almost more impressive that the revolution maintained its goals after that, even throughout the entire Cold War. Yes. Um, the special period is what it's called <clears throat> in the 90s. Uh, and it is outside of the, you know, immediate purview of our show because it was so much later than the events we're covering, but we will talk about it at some point in some, in some level of detail, because shout out to um, Helen Yaffe. We interview her in the show, but she wrote a book called We Are Cuba, and it's about how the revolutionary government uh, survived the Soviet collapse. Um, and it is a very fascinating book, and it, and it gets into, of course, contemporary stuff as well. Uh, I would highly recommend it. But yes, I mean, uh, we spoke to another person, Bill Fletcher, who had visited Cuba, and he mentioned, you know, when he met with Fidel, talk about um, issues of like um, culture in Cuba and Afro-Cuban stuff and, and, and sort of the state of combating racism was why he was meeting with Fidel. Um, but he said Fidel told them, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, everyone said, that we had, you know, 10 months left and it's been 10 years since they said that. So there was a complete defying of expectations after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it's it's also, however, where a lot of setbacks happened. I mean, you know, uh, inequality is something that I think people uh, racial inequality is sometimes something that people who are trying to win an online argument will throw at you to just completely dismiss the revolution and say, well, there's still racism. That's very true. Like most countries on Earth, Cuba still confronts major problems of racism. However, um, one of the 
the biggest backslides that happened during the special period because Cuba was economically isolated was that the relatively impressive record of egalitarianizing education, employment and all that stuff that had been won by the revolution, not completed, but but made a lot of progress on um, that was reversed during the special period. One of the main ways that happened was um, cash was allowed to come back from um, family in Miami. And uh, Americans and many of those people were white and upper class or upper middle or upper upper class. So it it flowed back into Cuba to largely white and, you know, then better off people on the island, which increased inequality, Uh, not it didn't sustain a level of um, of of egalitarianism, obviously. And so uh, there were also market mechanisms that were introduced to survive in the 90s now that it was much harder to plan and rely on a on a steady um, uh, economic agenda that also introduced more inequalities because you go by the market. Some people win, some people lose. And so if anything, the argument, you know, is that we see what happens when we start to liberalize so-called the, the, the economies much as happened in Eastern Europe after the collapse of the Soviet union, inequalities, racial and economic and, and otherwise creep back in fairly quickly. So it did survive in the nineties at a great cost. Um, but it's still here. And as you know, people probably have picked up in the news, the communist party just had its eighth Congress. Raul has stepped down as secretary. There is a new generation of leadership and, um, especially if you look around uh, some other places where the Americans are still trying to meddle, Cuba's doing um, pretty stable. It's, it's confronting a lot of problems. It's confronting I mean, gonna, a lot they of have problems. Their own, they have their own COVID vaccine that unlike America, they're going to give for free to like the rest of the world if they want it. Yes. And, and they are, and they have, they have made those, those, I mean, we should say about COVID, um, you know, there, there was a pretty bad upsurge in cases earlier this year. And we talked to some of our friends as to why that was some interesting, you know, reasons it's, it seems like, you know, basically some people just did not abide by, by the quarantine strictures. And a lot of people had, had come back, um, from, from abroad, the government's trying to get it back under control. Even still, we're talking about, I think in total, uh, several hundred dead. Um, and the case, uh, number versus the mortality number is really something to take into account. That's a that's a ratio in which the American case is not very impressive. In the Cuban case, it still is. And the fact that they are developing their own vaccine, which, by the way, the U.S. embargo has made it very difficult for them to do right. because they need disposable medical equipment that it's hard for them to get because of the embargo. And this is a, you know, the the transition of power to which Brendan is kind of referring to earlier. It's part of this, you know, there is Cuba is in the middle of this multi-year process that was democratically approved by the Cuban people in 2019 in a referendum. And, you know, this, this commits them, they committed, they voted to commit themselves to socialism in an election with 85% turnout, but also it is this, you know, sort of, they are like, obviously rural Castro has left the government. Um, I think people tend to read a little bit too much into the personality of that um, decision. Mm -hmm. Um, And also there is, you know, the American media in general, because Americans aren't super plugged into what's going on in, in, Uh, The American media has its own set of biases uh, when it's looking at Cuba is not always most reliable on this stuff. Um, But, you know, this transition is real. And at the same time, it's also occurring uh, when Cuba perhaps has not been in this precarious position as it has been since the special period. Um, Last year, the Cuban GDP shrank by 11 percent. Imports were reduced by 40 percent. This is a combination of covid, but also the Trump, you know, sanctions that he was able to add. He was, you know, in, in the January 2021, you know, earlier this year, 
is a fuck you out the door. He added Cuba to the State Department, you know, list of uh, state sponsors of terror. A bullshit list, by the way. But like the Cuban also, government. Also, not to is, interrupt, but I, I think the reason that they used was that Cuba supports Venezuela and that's a terrorist government. And that's why they're on the state sponsor of awesome. terror list. Where um, we are literally punishing countries for, for having friends. And like it gets to this, you know, insane fucking degree where we are like we're, we're torturing this island and we have been like you know like like very effectively for many many years and they're at a you know like the like like even at this moment of like you know global precarity because of the pandemic in a lot of ways like we have a new administration and what has the messaging been thus far you know after like all of this like you know trump rah-rah bullshit and after the obama you know steps towards you know normalization steps toward but not actually taken um it's been disheartening, frankly. That's always the thing with Biden is I feel like people are very tempted to talk about how Biden is. I mean, just by the weakness of his comparison points, other presidents that we've had since about, yeah, really 1980. Yeah, he's, I guess, like the most effective, uh, best president in some ways of our lifetimes. But I think that totally obscures people from talking about the Blinken State Department and the overall Biden foreign policy view, which is not even really a departure from Mike Pompeo. No. Yeah. We, we, we spoke to some of our guests and we said, hey, what, what, what do you think about Biden? Like, are people in Cuba optimistic? Because, of course, Biden was VP when Obama started to open up stuff. And Obama went to Cuba. I mean, that was seen as very significant at, at the time, even if it was just the beginning, sort of the opening salvo. And you know, People we spoke to, some were more skeptical, but everyone wants the embargo gone. And, you know, I think every humane person should want the embargo gone. But I, I felt uh, like it was a bit of a bummer to, to let, to, to, if they hadn't seen it, to let them know that Jen Psaki had said the day before, um, we don't consider Cuba a priority. Right. Um, it's, it's, and there's, on top of that, you know, there is also the fact that, like, the only condition, right, like the only thing that theoretically inhibits any sort of diplomatic discussion is the fact that, like, the American government does not respect the legitimacy of the Cuban revolutionary government. Like, the American government, like, like we, we do not accept that the Cuban people have decided as a people to do what they have. And it's we've decided that the pretext is that they don't have a democracy that conforms to our standards, which, like, it's true. But, you know, who's responsible for that? And, 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 and also, like, uh, compare that compare that to the collegiate states that America has yeah. a problem with. I mean, is, uh, Cuba, is Cuba less democratic than fucking Qatar? Of course not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, no, no, don't uh, even compare it to the Gulf states. Compare it to America. Like how yes. fucking yeah. democratic a country do we have here? Like in terms of the the ability Absolutely. of the average citizen to like affect change and it's a right. government. And like I yes. mean, I'm sorry, I think the average Cuban is in a, has is playing a better hand than Amer the Again, average American. I don't want to fall into the position of appointing anyone here spokesman for all Cubans. We're not trying to do that, but I, I would mean, say. I am, but Okay, I, I am. You, I am Cuba. All power to will. You, you, but you just look. Just look on on a let's say a one one very important measure. How has their government moved on a pandemic sweeping the earth? Did 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 they move on it in a way that 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 makes you think they care about what happens to their people or not? I, I think whatever you want to say about other parts of their system, which I would probably you know pick some people up on. Uh, just look at that alone and then look at the way that it was handled in America. And that honestly, it's still being handled. No one gives a shit on the upper levels of American government or, or society about how this pandemic 
affected anybody below a certain tax bracket and they never will because that's not that that's not the priority and there's there's no democratic accountability there and you could apply that of course to a lot of other issues as well so yes i i just want to say the blinken state department i think he personally had a call with guido um yeah you know and it's just like so another thing i had to, i had to ask him or guess i was like does that encourage you you know unfortunately like that the first fucking person they're going to talk to in in the region is this loser that like <laughs> this even the loser. Western, yeah. even this even the Western European squishy states have said like yeah we don't fuck with him yeah, anymore. He's, it's, it's he doesn't. He is unemployed. When Ricardo <laughs> yeah. is unemployed, he does not have a job. They, he they has tried arguably to, never had a job. They, they tried to make him look cool the last time he did like a counter uh, state of the union, and they like did Christopher Nolan color grading on him. And for a second, like I seriously thought he was a Call of Duty, uh, you know, a Cold War DLC cutscene because I was oh just like, they, they made it. They're going. They're trying so hard. He now looks CGI, and no one, obviously, no one, no one cares about that guy except for the U.S. State Department. I mean, look. So what if? So what if the leader of the opposition in Venezuela? is a hologram yeah i still whatever. think that we have to stand with democracy and human rights i mean Help one, me one thing way to, you're my only hope one thing that i think is a, worth just uh making a quick note about though mm-hmm. um this point about like you know uh respecting the legitimacy and, and how we, we we can't do it like that's all that's on the table and the only reason that the biden administration doesn't do it and this is you know like what you can get from talking to anybody in the beltway with like you know a lanyard down to, to their knees or whatever um it, like it's because of the political costs, right? The short to medium term political costs, which are imaginary. Everybody imagines that, oh, Florida is going to backslide when in fact, like kind of, you know, intuitively, actually, when you open up, like, you know, nor- you normalize things, people tend to not have such, you know, intense feelings of hatred between one another and so on. And I think that there is like a kind of, um, there is a uh, degree to which like people in Washington have convinced themselves of a very cynical discourse in which they expect you uh, listener to be a participant and it's to buy their bullshit. And it's to say that like, you know, that like, oh, we just can't do it because we risk, you know, Florida and everything. Florida's presidential primary is three weeks from tomorrow. And tonight, Bernie Sanders campaign is generating a lot of controversy here because of comments he made about Fidel Castro and the Cuban revolution. Well, guess what? Florida voter Republican in the last election, it didn't mean shit. Like, these these arguments did not hold water before, and they don't now. Yeah, no, Florida, like, I stopped thinking about Florida when Andrew Gillum started his, the greatest year any (laughs) Democratic politician has ever had, where he would do five interviews a week that's like, uh, we need to kill Maduro, and then uh, a year later, it's like, he's doing interviews about how he's bi. Um, I, yeah, I, I was just thinking about, uh, do you remember when they tried to do the Juan Guiado challenge? (laughs) I kind of remember the phrase, but I don't know what that means. It was like Marco Rubio and all these people were like, check it out. It's the Juan Guiado challenge. And they were just like taking like the shittiest, like Facebook guy selfies of them in gray hoodies with the hood up. And it was like. Who do you think is gonna do like, this? <laughs> like, who's who thinks this is cool? I mean, also, what is that? That like, it's like feels like a little bit miscast Trayvon Martin kind of thing. Yeah, I sort I, of. Yeah, Juan, I mean, for like Florida politicians, especially. Yeah. yeah like, oh my god. Yeah. No. Uh, it's, one Guaido challenge is uh, get stuck trying to climb over a fence and then get your picture yeah. taken. I bet Juan Guaido has been stuck in an elevator. He yeah. really exudes mm. that. Oh yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah oh, it, but just just to to keep it uh, some. 
somewhat light and contemporary for one more second. We did we did use in an episode the uh, Trump uh, speech to the Bay of Pigs vets, where he came and I, no, well, what was it? He like gives him oh, a speech. Right? He says that there is. No, no, hold, the on, Bay hold on, hold on, hold on. He yeah. he he. What was the event? It was like it was the, it was honoring. It was like honoring the Bay of Pigs. Normally he doesn't. Like, see, this is funny because normally he doesn't like honoring losers of military I know, conflicts. I know. It's odd. Well, he goes up. He gets up. And he's like, he makes them wait, obviously. Um, and then he, he gets there and he goes up and it's, I, I don't know if this is for sure, but it's possible he doesn't even know what the Bay of Pigs was. Like the way he's talking yeah. about Almost it, certainly not. He almost Zero certainly chance. doesn't know what it I was. I mean, that and, or and he he's goes, like Zand up. He, he goes like, um, he says like, uh, you, you, uh, you endorsed me in, in 20, uh, 2016. I have, the, I have the award on a wall. I was honored to receive the endorsement of the Bay of Pigs Veterans Association in 2016, and they gave me a beautiful award, and I have it very proudly on a wall of great importance to me. He says it's on a wall of great importance to him, which is my favorite wall. Underrated, Listen, underrated Trump line, a wall I of great importance him. to me. Yeah, that is, yeah, I, and I then, think that that is a testament to our research uh, ability with and, this season was that we found a Trump <laughs> quote that made us laugh that was new. That we didn't know about. And then, and then he goes like, and uh, you, you, you want a free Cuba and you will have that. Today we declare America's unwavering commitment to a free Cuba and you will have that. You will have that very soon. We're glad to be joined. They will have it, Mike, won't they? Huh? It's happening very fast, actually. You will have that very soon. You will get that. You will get that. And then he goes, I'm going to give it to Mike because Mike Pence is here, and he's very much with what you're all about. He's very... <laughs> he's, he's with you, and he's very much interested in a lot of the same things I think you're going to see about what you're interested in. And it's just like, he has no idea who these people are. He and does not give a fuck. No, I'm he's going to like, save the pit bulls, folks. I promise. Realistically, there's like five Mar-a-Lago members in that crowd, you know. Well, like, but but then Pence gets up and he's got zero swag and he's just like not. He's just saying, you know. The, listen, the, we're gonna keep Cuba. We're gonna, oh, it's, it's you know five years from now, ten years from now, it's gonna be a Cuba Libra. Yeah, he turned into Bill Clinton and then he said that, and then and then he said <laughs> and then he says like, um, you were you you hit the beaches greatly outnumbered by Castro's socialist forces. <laughs> it's just like he has to get socialist in there and God, he really. But I just imagine being one of these what like 80 year old or 90 year old uh, Bay of Pigs guys and you're looking up and you got Trump saying like yeah he's this what, what you people are all about is just so good it's it's great it's fantastic I love it and you're just like do you admit that this is a huge joke on you or not I don't you keep yeah. the dream alive I don't I know. know yeah no these guys no. these guys have been living now yeah 70 plus years no, of but keeping the dream like alive government- our yeah. government indulges their fans. Yeah, absolutely. Radio RT. Like we we yeah. literally have had make work programs funded by our government for yeah. decades to keep right wing Cubans employed. Like one of the problems, it's very interesting. Our government, when Cuban exiles were leaving Cuba and coming to settle in the United States, you know, like obviously we now know that like they transformed Miami. What was once, you know, you know, Jewish pensioners became with the arrival of Cuban Americans, like a major city and a major power player, politically speaking. There were actually Cubans who were uh, exiles from uh, the island fleeing, you know, fleeing Castro or whatever, uh, who were encouraged by the U.S. government to move like anywhere but Miami. And, you know, like so these people like the Brigadistas, the people who were watching Trump speak, 
Um, like they have been living in a Trump-like sphere of delusion for decades, mm. um, funded by our government. And the government knew that, you know, that was a possibility when they were congregating as a community, you know, funded by the government and so on, organized around anti-Castro activity uh, in Miami. But yeah, so 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 Trump's, Sorry, Trump's speech to them, sponge, Trump's speech to them is, is a fun one that, that uh, we play in the show. Well, actually, let's let's, let's take the moment now to, to transition uh, out, out, of, out of Cupid talk and into the, uh, the present moment. I was thinking uh, if it was okay with you guys to just do a classic Chapo reading series that is very much in the vein of all we're talking about. I mean, the, this is a this is an example of um, imperial brain rot and like sort of similar to being caught off guard by Cuba. You know, like what what happens to like our policy planners and our best and brightest when the, our, our sort of self image of invincible righteous power comes smack up against reality? And I'm talking, of course, mm. about the now long long overdue announcement that america is leaving afghanistan and that you know uh have, did we win the war I, I i don't know what do i tell my kids what do i tell what do i tell my did son you, did you see did you see the uh worst threat of all time oh yeah i did it was the, it was the, just, the military it was just, wife yeah it's just like military wife who's like afghanistan's been like a member of my family who i hate <laughs> this has ah. been really hard for me and i don't even know if i feel anything at this point um, and she was like trying to find a way to like connect, like connect any tragedy she had to Afghanistan, even though like, yeah, she has a ton of military family, but none of them died over there. So she was like, <laughs> Afghanistan's the reason that I had to bury my father alone. And it's like, you're like, 50. Uh, you're like, 50. <laughs> yeah. like to, my parent died. No way. Like an orphan. Yeah. No. And, and, okay. But, but it was, there's one part where she's like, um, I consider uh, Fatma like a member of my family, and it's like I was just a, she's like she's probably like getting letters from this poor Afghani woman or Afghan woman, and it's like uh, she's just reading it in her mind in an Aunt Jemima voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, like, this is... it was just that was it like put me in such a bad mood. Like I I I like I I think that like the like sort of like the sort of like attempt at like third worlderism by Americans is like usually pathetic yeah. and just like clownish and like no one in those countries like gives a shit if, if an American does that. Yeah. But like I did understand it then I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck this lady. Well, yeah. this is, this is, uh, this reading series is very much in the vein of the same kind of like weepy histrionics. And like I said, just pure Imperial brain rot. And it could not come from anyone other than, you know, the U.S. empire's most, uh, shall we say, um, witty, charming, <laughs> and clear-thinking individuals. And I'm talking, of course, about Thomas Friedman. New York Times, New York Times with Panache. <laughs> New York Times opinion column, Thomas Friedman. The yes. headline, What Joe Biden and I Saw After the U.S. Invaded Afghanistan. Back when we visited, back when we visited in 2002, there was hope that America could help make the country better. 
So let's mm-hmm. just let's just dive into the mind yeah. palace of uh, Thomas Friedman. Uh, beginning here, he says, I was not surprised that Joe Biden decided to finally pull the plug on the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. Back in 2002, it was reasonable to hope that our invasion there to topple Osama bin Laden and his Taliban allies could be extended to help make that country a more stable, tolerant, and decent place for its citizens, and less likely to host jihadist groups. But it was also reasonable to fear from the start that trying to graft a Western political culture onto such a deeply tribalized, male-dominated, mm-hmm. and Islamic fundamentalist culture like Afghanistan's was a fool's mm-hmm. errand, especially mm-hmm. when you say male-dominated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? I mean, it's just like oh, I mean, uh, Thomas. I mean, if this was clear to you then, you certainly weren't sharing it in your columns about what a fool's errand this all might turn out to be. Um, and in fact, m- much of this column is actually in, takes the place of a diary he supposedly kept um, during okay. this time. And he goes, okay. Biden, Biden was torn between those hopes and fears from the very start. I know because I was with him on his first visit in early January 2002 to post-war Afghanistan. It was just weeks after the major fighting had subsided and the Taliban were evicted from Kabul. He goes, uh, I kept a diary in the months after 9-11, including of that trip, and published, <laughs> so it, and published it in 2002 <laughs> with a collection of columns from that time in my book, Longitudes and Attitudes, Exploring the World After September 11. <laughs> That's my favorite Jimmy Buffett album. King Kong! King Kong ain't got shit on Thomas Friedman and his diary of thoughts and columns that he fucking cashed out for a book deal, reprinting his... Longitudes... And attitudes and attitudes. Oh, that he got hits. paid like twenty million dollars for that. Can, can can I just say by the way that I walked by the the coffee shop around the corner from me the other day and there was a copy. Uh, I was like, that book's been there like every day I pass by. What what is it? And it's just a copy of um, the world is isn't it f- flat, hot, and crowded? That's the one. That's him, right? Well, and, so, it's, and the world is flat. He has two books about flatness. He said flat twice in two yeah. different times? Yeah, well, because flatness is good. Flatness, it's... Okay, it, Matt Taibbi already like established this, but it, his metaphor, it doesn't work because the whole point of a sphere is that two points on a sphere are closer together than at any point on a flat plane. I don't know what that means, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's geometry. But, the point but, is, is that he doesn't get it. But it was, but it was on the, it was on the counter, and I don't know if it's like a book that someone was so displeased with they just left at the cafe and didn't even take with them. <laughs> they're using or it to make, <laughs> they're using it to make or sure it, the little tables don't wobble. They just wedge yeah, a Friedman or, under there. Yeah, they just use it as a doorstop. But yeah, I just thought that was funny that of all books, it was Tom Friedman. Anyway, so he goes keep on going. Here. He goes, uh, uh, they were my thoughts, not Biden's, but we were seeing the same things and sharing many of the same first impressions, which in many ways persist today. So, like, yeah, he's going to share. I am Joe Biden. <laughs> he's sharing his. Think about it. <laughs> he's sharing his yeah, diary. Contact, contact your contact uh, a doctor or a family member if you are having the same thoughts and perceptions as Joe Biden. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Because, yeah, uh, he started. He started. Uh, he started uh, just bringing milkshakes everywhere. Biden, but Biden opens a like a, a local um, um, sort of like imams meeting by calling him "Hey Fat," and then just <laughs> launching into a, a horrible tirade. He gave my he gave my mom uh, his class ring. They're both sixty three. <laughs> <laughs> because here, uh, the diary entry began. We flew to Islamabad and then grabbed the UN relief flight into Bagram Air Base. I'm just, ima- <laughs> I'm just imagining Thomas Friedman getting visited by like the Black Lodge, where they're like, "The Goodale yeah. is here. Write it in your diary, Thomas." Yep. Uh, so he goes here. Don't uh, put on the ring, Joe. 
<laughs> we flew to Islamabad and then grabbed the UN relief flight into the into Bagram Air Force Base, 50 miles from Kabul, uh, also known as the major one of the major hubs of U.S.'s uh, torture regime was uh, carried out at Bagram Air Force Base. But he mm-hmm. goes here. Uh, I stayed at the house being rented by the New York Times, which had only slightly better plumbing, but a friendly group of Afghan drivers and cooks who kept the fireplace roaring and the raisin pilaf and warm Afghan bread on the table. I mean, this is just <laughs> oh like, this is like Tintin tin in the Congo. I mean, this is just like fucking <laughs> Thomas oh Friedman. He's just like our, our, our lovable Afghan servants kept us, kept us adorned in, what, in, in, their, in their local fabrics and warm rice pilaf. And, and- and this was written now. This isn't even in 2002, right? No, no. This is his diary from 2002. Oh, it's his diary. This is, from this back is then. his okay. thoughts at like the height of okay. all this. Yes. He goes, yeah, but sure. he's publishing it. He's now. publishing it now. <laughs> yeah, he, goes, yeah. he goes. Uh, my first impression of Kabul. It was Ground Zero East. We might as well be doing nation building on the moon. I wrote in a column I published that week. I, nice. I just love here like. Like, like I said, this is all wow. being written, like a column being written at the time. These are his diaries from 2002 when he had hope for Afghanistan. And this is what he's saying about it. He's like, yeah. this country Looks is like, like a the- pile of shit. <laughs> yeah. like, this, country, this country is like the moon. <laughs> can't, I can't wait to go home. <laughs> this country is like the moon. Although some of its friendly moon people uh, feed me rice pilaf yeah. and warm They don't bread. even have magic cards here. Yeah. This is taking forever. God. Okay. So, so, so he's, what, what's the point he's driving to? I'm fascinated. So he goes here, uh, uh, I'm just, I'm skipping ahead around. This is, this is back yeah. to the diary. He goes, my heart told me to write that America must remain here for however long it takes with however many troops it takes to repair this country and provide a minimum level of security so it can get on its feet again. Mm. It was the least we owed the place, having already abandoned it once after the Soviet withdrawal. We didn't have to make it Switzerland just a little bit better, a little freer, and a little more stable than it was under the Taliban. I just love how fucking racist this all is. Like, just yeah. he glides right over it. He's like, look, it's never going to be Switzerland, okay? But yeah. if, we can just make, if we can just make these stupid moon people um, a little less violent yeah. and... Uh, <laughs> You know, so yeah, a little just, bit better, uh, just a little bit like, more stable. You know, like at, I, when, I, I know we all know this now about about Friedman. This is just who he is. But every time we like, Will, you came on last season. We read from him during the Iraq War, and it's just it always like it's it's being born again. Listening to the way a little, we should have made it just a little bit better and a little bit freer. Like. How many teaspoons of better? What, yeah. what is the measurement he's going on here of all these general words? It's it's infuriating. This is like, it's like, I prefer the guys who like, it's, this is the same thing as the guys who are like, everyone who's like the first reply to Ilan Omar, like the dark universe, Jeff Tiedrichs, who are like, why don't you <laughs> tell that to your moon god, Allah? Yeah. There is a part in the Constitution that says that no one can be an an Allah style individual, yeah. but it's like the same thing. This yeah. is just like the same bullshit. So, and uh, he also is is saying that this is a moon based place. So. Yeah, <laughs> he goes here. This is this is once again from Thomas Friedman's diary. He goes, Tom Friedman's <laughs> first rule of politics. Never trust the country where a new minister has the picture of his favorite dead militia leader, not the country's interim president over his desk. So he was just like, yeah, uh, we, were, we, were trying to, we were trying to make the place a little bit better, but like immediately government ministers didn't have photos of Hamid Karzai over, like, on their desk. They, this they is a the, list he's writing himself? Yeah. This is Thomas Friedman's rules. And he goes, it seemed to me that the tribal warrior culture ran so deep in this place, (laughs) it would be hard for any neutral central government to sink real roots. As I contemplated that militia leader's picture, I wondered to myself, 
when were the good old days of government in Afghanistan? Before Genghis Khan? Before gunpowder? How about right before we started getting involved? <laughs> I mean, like, before we invented all of these these uh, sort of I would... groups that he hates so much and thinks that it's, it's the moon, it's the moon Islamic Jihad moon base. But I, 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 I'm, we- I'm weirded out by him writing, like, in the third person, his own list of yeah, his rules. Rules, rules and, suggestions. and regulations for s- stealing candy. <laughs> I yeah, I was going to say. Oh, oh yeah. fuck. Sorry. Sorry. Rules and regulations. <laughs> Actually, it's Afghanistan, um, so it's the U.S. Rules and regulation for stealing opium. Yes. <laughs> I hope at least, yeah. So he goes here. Uh, Indeed, I wrote in my column that week that I lingered one evening in the famous bookstore of the Intercontinental Hotel, which had an amazing oh, wow. collection of books on Afghan history. As you I really per- explored the country, Tom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You really got out there. He's at the, he's yeah, at the hotel really bookstore. <laughs> I went to the fucking guest shop. Yeah, I went to the gift shop at the Intercontinental. <laughs> in the green zone. Not goes, even you, trying. He goes, as I perused... Yeah, it's not even the cab driver. It's worse than the cab driver. <laughs> as I perused the shelves, I wrote, I was struck by how many books had Afghan wars in the title. I picked up one called oh, A History God. of the War in Afghanistan and discovered it was a part of a too thick of a thick two-volume set that covered only the years 1800 to 1842. I was also struck by the collection of postcards offered in that bookstore, one in particular. It was a two-part picture. One part was of a shell-ravaged building and the other part of a damaged hallway with the roof collapsed and rubble strewn all over the floor. The caption read, Afghanistan, the looted and destroyed Kabul Museum. That is the sign of a country too long at war when it is producing postcards of the rubble. And it's like, this is Thomas Friedman writing in 2002, like, you know, on the precipice of another 20 years of the U.S. being at war in that country. Also, if you're being sent as a professional journalist to a country and then find yourself surprised, like, in the in the gift shop by books about that country and, like, detail, (laughs) why are you in the country on this... On this he is, he is America's mission. premier foreign policy correspondent, and and, and he's like, probably like I want to I like he probably makes like two hundred fifty like five hundred grand a year. Well, with the speaking fees, I mean, he's got to be. Yeah, I mean, his wife is a billionaire it. too. So I mean, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Google Tom. I mean, as always, Google Tom Friedman house. Yeah, always. Google Tom Friedman shirt off. <laughs> <laughs> you may like what you see. So this this is this is one. Yeah, <laughs> this is you. You want to talk about uh, like Thomas Friedman mixed metaphors? I just I highlighted this sentence just in the middle of an otherwise boring paragraph. He goes, yeah. he writes here, could the future bury the past there, or would the past always bury the future? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> This is, this is like young adult writing. This is so right. bad. This right. is like it's like a combination of that and like Benny Johnson's Ford Hood food blog. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> wait, wait, Felix, you you bring you bring up Benny Johnson. Okay, listen to this paragraph. This is once again back to the diary. He writes here in two thousand two. I looked around the room at the special forces A teams that were there and could see America's strength hiding in plain sight. It wasn't smart missiles or night fighting equipment. It was the fact that these special forces teams each seemed to be made up of a collection of black, Asian, Hispanic, and white Americans. It is our ability to blend those many into one hard fist that is the real source of our power. Yeah, one hard okay. fist. You got the blacks, okay. Asians, 
Hispanics, <laughs> <laughs> white <laughs> Americans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Together, that's that's you America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, yeah. Uh, this is precisely what Afghans have not been able to do in recent decades, and has left oh. them weak and divided and prey to outsiders. So it was their inability to come together to form fucking special forces death squads. I mean, shit. Yeah. If they if they had if they had if they had special forces death squads, they could, had like, all the training from us. Yeah, Why yeah. couldn't they do they, it? They could yeah. project force anywhere in the world. They may have visited Thomas Friedman before this fucking war even started and they could have yeah it's just a projected force outwards tom Tom, yeah tom friedman walking up to like hamid karzai's brother and brother who is the opium trafficker and being like do you have any like black guys here (laughs) you're like a chinese guy or something because i have this idea (laughs) oh my god and he goes uh of that special forces paragraph he Uh says Reading that particular passage 20 years later, I confess that I wonder if we had become more like the Afghans and not the Afghans more like us. Our diversity is only our strength as long as we can forge out of many one. But lately, our parties in politics have become so tribalized, it's not clear anymore that we can do that. I mean, this is like the dumbest version of like white man's burden. Like, He's just saying that like, oh, the, the Afghans are making us more like moon people than we than we are making them more like Swiss people. But all this of is these like the dying transmission of the AI that writes Tom Friedman columns. <laughs> but all, all of these um, little pirouettes with the I'm going to make the one thing switch with the other thing in every sentence. This is like uh, very Pete Buttigieg, uh, like you know the bigness of our different. Differences is smaller than the bigness of our similarities or whatever. He's just every sentence is that. Uh, but about it, Afghanistan, it, it, it reminded me of how Carrie in Sex in the City writes. Like, 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 I, I wondered, was were we the ones who needed a tribal meeting? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's again, Will though. I, I again, everything he's writing down is like why this isn't good, and then he says he went off home and wrote in support of the war yeah, it's such yeah. a strange thing to be writing now or admitting well, he, now he goes i like the idea of like his editor being like you know what tom i want you to try and you know maybe go back to like oh two and see what you wrote then let's try for an introspective one this go around and then like this is what he came back with and he goes uh, just one of the worst <laughs> things ever written yeah. it was like i tried to look within myself and all i saw was the abyss yeah. so like uh, so he, so he goes on in his diary to describe uh, what happened when him and joe biden tried to leave the country on like a military cargo plane and they got like the guys were like oh we we have orders that like we can't put any civilians on this plane so in his diary he writes this getting out of afghanistan turned out to be harder than getting in which no I way. hope will no not be, a, which wow. I hope will not be a metaphor for U.S. operations there generally. <laughs> oh, oh, whoops. oh, my bad. It <laughs> so, turned out it was. All right, I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna guess that in like ten months from now, we're still in Afghanistan. Joe, Bi- uh, I mean Tom Friedman is going to use this as a callback. I'm. I, something tells me. I don't so, know what. So yeah. they're on. They're on I, uh, yeah, it would. It's going to rock because he's going to be like, yeah, I was actually. Uh, I, I was right. Yeah, I was right about myself being wrong. Again. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, exactly. it's actually interesting. You know, it's very interesting when you consider the flatness of how correct I am, which is, yeah. which is yeah. flat all the time, it's, it's, which makes the world when it's interconnected matter so much more. Yeah. So, yeah. And so like now he finally brings in like a little little rem- reminiscing about uh, about Joe Biden, about sleepy Joe Biden, because like he front loaded this whole column with like me and Joe's time in Afghanistan. We, we're best friends. Yeah, yeah, I, was yeah. About, I was about to ask, like, wh- where is Biden if he's right, with so Biden? So Biden, Biden comes in doing? here 
And he goes, okay. I ended up lending Biden my satellite phone to call Secretary of State Colin Powell via the State Department Operations Center a sal- a satellite to see phone, if he could help. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I'm just a, I'm just a journalist here in Afghanistan, and I have a satellite <laughs> phone that connects me directly to the State Department. Yeah, you know, like center it's like operations. George Clooney and the fucking peacemaker, what a peacemaker or whatever. Thomas Friedman probably shouldn't even have like a regular phone. <laughs> yeah. He should probably just have a he gets, jitterbug. He gets a, he gets, what's that thing for old uh, jitterbug? jitterbug. Yeah. yeah, he gets a jitterbug. So he goes here. Uh, so he gives Joe Biden his, his satellite phone that he just mm. has and goes, uh, this is Joe Biden. Could you connect me with Colin Powell? Biden asked the State Department operator. A few minutes pass. Colin, Colin, hey, it's Joe Biden. Yeah, I'm standing here on the runway at Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan trying to get out on a military transport. And they're telling me that the Pentagon has ordered that no civilians be let on the plane. I'm sorry to trouble you, Colin, but uh, could you give us a hand here? Powell told Biden to hold on for a minute when he, while he tracked down Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld was in church, so Powell tracked down his deputy, Paul Wolfowitz, and he goes, uh, there were a few more minutes of phone calls to CENTCOM headquarters in Florida before Powell came back on the phone with Biden. Joe, said the Secretary of State, let me talk to the air traffic controller there. I mean, this goes on for another three paragraphs. Fascinating. Just talk, yeah, just, Man, this is yeah. so cool. I feel like I'm there. Grandparents across the country are emailing this to their <laughs> progeny. Do, do, you think, do, you, do you think there's like a, there's like a guy who's like, He's one of those YouTube guys whose thing is like he's obsessed with air traffic controls. Right. <laughs> and he's this is the only newspaper article he's ever read. And this he's one's like, free. This you. is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like with I mean, actually, I do kind of want to look. I, it is always it is really funny always to look at who genuine like whenever like Samantha Power writes something for like the evil blog or whatever. Like and yeah. then it's like who actually shares it like on Twitter, like who's like boosting it or whatever. And it's al- it's always academics. Like always, like it's Professor somebody, but um, I'm I am curious who would be the kind of person to share this. So like, uh, they, they they get on the airplane, well, they get on the airplane, and then they land in Pakistan. And then this is what he says here. He says, talking to the U.S. airman at uh, J- uh J- Jacobaba. Oh fucking! It. I'm not even gonna say it. Just say, talking, just say, at an airbase. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's pronounced so, San Luis Obispo. J- <laughs> <laughs> so talking to the U.S. airman at insert Air Force base in Pakistan was an eye-opener. One of them told us, we don't have a flight to Afghanistan that doesn't get shot at by small arms fire from inside Pakistan somewhere near the border. But Pakistan is our ally in this war, we said. Tell that to the Pakistanis who live along the Afghan border, he shrugged. It was one of those moments when you realize as a journalist that there are a million stories going on in and around this larger war story that you have no clue about. It was one of those moments when you get an inkling that you were standing on a story with a false bottom. You get an inkling that you were standing on a story with a false bottom. Is the bottom of this? The bottom the is, his, like, is his absolute down like, his ass? dog I, I went ignorance about the world. I went to Afghanistan thinking I was a bratty verse top. And then <laughs> on the plane with Joe Biden, I learned I'm oh, actually a bottom. It is I cool guess. because I am now looking on Twitter to see like who is like sharing this article. And one mm. guy is like distinguished dip- is like, you know, his profile is like a federal government picture. And it's like distinguished diplomatic diplomat in residence, uh, retired diplomat, et cetera, et cetera. So like, you know, this like drivel, this like, like brain slurry from the head of Tom Friedman is actually passed around by serious grown-ups. Oh, sure. Yeah, um, no, 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 yeah. Like, um, did you... You remember that woman, Kelly Magsman, who is like... Uh, oh, God, Elliot like, Abrams' yeah, friend. She, she, she works for the Blinken uh, State Department now, but she had the tweet that was like, hey, I'm a liberal Democrat, 
but Elliot Abrams is a good guy, and he's been held accountable for the bad stuff he did. Oh which yes, he oh gave a great insight on what holds. I like the idea of like Elliot Abrams being yeah. held accountable and it not involving a scene from The Wicker Man. Yeah, so like, um, I would look at like just like bullshit articles she would write, and yeah, it's I'm fascinated by that side of Twitter where it's like not even like even like yeah daily like the worst like NATSEC daily beast journalist or whatever has some like guile and knows how to like vaguely imitate like a prospector joke and shit to, for like, you know, whatever dumb argument they're in. Yeah. But like these people are just, they have none of that. They're just, they don't have any of like the irony affect and it's, yeah, yeah, you look at their bios and I've gone psycho enough to like go to their LinkedIn's and it's always like, yeah, like, uh, head of child molestation at Golden Staff. <laughs> like, shit like that. Oh, but by the way, I, I, you say the Daily Beast. I share, I share your, you know, general uh, take on the Daily Beast. But I guess it was them that just the other day helped break that um, the whole Taliban talk about Afghanistan. The whole Russia Taliban bounty yeah. thing yeah, was yeah. not true. Didn't happen. Well, yeah, no, we made I, it I up. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Fiction. Well, that, I mean, this one's a story made up by a writer. It's a made-up tale. It's a total fabrication. It never happened. I think the daily. Well, I should clarify. Like, I think the Daily Beast is like very editorially bad, but yeah. obviously, like, I mean, like every place is every. Yeah, there's news no exception. Is bad, there. and every yes. news company also has like people who are good who work there. Yes, yes, Ex- yes, and yeah. and that was a good report. And I I had to go back and just queue up the Rachel Maddow segment where it's just oh like now God. we know. Now we know that this was happening because uh, it's in the New York Times and we know that President Trump didn't care or if worse, was he a part of it? And it's just like this 20 minute long expose over nothing didn't even happen. People were saying it didn't happen at the time and it's on TV and I'm watching it on my screen because it's on TV. And now we learn it was all it was all completely made up. Amazing. So, so just to close out um, Thomas Friedman's, you know, Proustian mm. reverie about a fucking war that he's, you know, feels slightly convicted. Yeah. He's like, I can't help but he feel in some date. way responsible for the last 20 years of fucking bloodshed in this country. Did I do that? So, he yeah, goes, yeah. so that was Joe Biden's and my introduction to Afghanistan. When I interviewed him last December, a month after his election as president, we got talking informally about the Middle East. And he asked if I remembered our trip to Afghanistan and all the craziness at the end. I'd never forgot it, I told him. Clearly, neither had he. Our nation's... Oh. <laughs> Like, you remember that one crazy trip we took? You know, it's what a what a wild ride it's all been for. That's like for America that's that, that, as it relates to Afghanistan. That part is also like totally made up. Like <laughs> also, that, yeah. but like that 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 like he like he was like, hey, do you remember our trip to Afghanistan? And Joe Biden like definitely thought he was someone else. Yeah, that much is true. And also, just w- that paragraph was just him in a lot of words saying, "I asked Biden about." Does he remember the trip? And he said yes. Like that—that's—that's that's not a paragraph. Why would you? Why would you include that? Of course. Well, not of course that he remembers. It's unlikely that he did. It's just so strange. Like this is what he's paid to fill up the space with. So Great. We now know he, that he's trying, he's he said to, that. He's going to try to like tie it all together here. And he, okay. he says here, our nation's effort there w- was worth a try. Our soldiers. <laughs> our okay. So- all right. Okay. They left it all out on the field. And that's uh, what matters. As as long as people had fun. Yeah, that's literally what George W. Bush said at the end of the Iraq war when like in the same day, I believe we talked about this in episode 10 of last season on the same day that he got the shoe thrown at him. Um, oh, yeah. He's also speaking to troops and 
the troops are saying, you know, he's like saying, like, you know, we, we, we try, like, like his, his reasoning was effectively like, we tried. And because we tried, we didn't fail. And because we didn't fail, we yes. succeeded. He and says, because like, we tried, we didn't fail. And be, be, because we didn't fail, he doesn't quite say it, but because we didn't fail, we didn't, because we didn't fail, we won. Is basically yeah. what he's and trying to like, yeah, and, the, the, and then, the, and then, and then the National Guard did not like seize Washington, D.C. So that's right. And that's and, true. Yeah. And, and, and then, like, you know, and then you just, you're like, woo! And like everybody's like going crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was awesome. Sorry. Yeah. So, Will, was, was, was there so, one yeah, more? Here, uh, uh, our soldiers and diplomats were trying to make it better, but it was never clear they knew how or had enough Afghan partners. Yes, maybe leaving will make it worse, but our staying wasn't really helping. That's big of him to admit after 20 years of this <laughs> Thank shit. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> yeah. Whew. He goes, our leaving may be a short-term disaster, and in the longer run, who knows? Maybe Afghanistan <laughs> will find balance on its own. Like Vietnam. Only time will tell. <laughs> or time, not- to, to, quote, to quote Andrew, time will show. <laughs> Maybe it will find... <laughs> this article should have been called Time Will Show. Time will show. <laughs> oh, so, God. like, you know, maybe I we'll just f- imagine, like, like, not knowing who Tom Friedman was and reading this article and, like, getting to the end of it and just, like, you know, like, like what was that? Like, what, yeah, what, what it's that? something unpredictable, and in the end, it's right. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you had the time of your life. Oh, goodness. Yeah, well, I mean, in a strange, and I don't actually mean this kind of way, it's comforting that Tom's still there doing what he always did, uh, offering eternal mustache, meaningless, meaningless drivel that uh, no one really reads, but it keeps getting published. Or I guess a lot of people so, read it, but no one learns anything. So, <laughs> I, I do, like, it did make me feel good to hear this. Yeah. Like, I, I used to, like, when I was younger, I would, like, get mad at Tom Friedman's shit. And now it's like, oh... <laughs> I'm, uh, I love him. There he is again. I mean, it's it'll be a shame day. It'll be it'll be a sad day when they put him out to pasture finally. Yeah, well, I will be. In, I will be upset. Just in closing, here he says, uh, maybe Afghanistan will find balance on its own, like Vietnam, or not. I don't know. <laughs> and then he just says. I am as humbled and ambivalent about it today as I was 20 years ago, and I'm sure that Biden is too. You were never ambivalent about this, Thomas Friedman. You rose (laughs) and said, suck on this. That's a direct quote. That wasn't very humble. Yeah, but this, well, what's this? He doesn't specify. Right. Being ambivalent. Yeah, it's actually. Is... I think you you guys just aren't being very flat about it, but that's just me. Yeah, that's we need to get true. flatter. Um, my goal this year is to get flatter, but yeah. uh, that's 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 a doozy. Um, I I don't want to um, take over the reins here, but Will, I did mention to you it's it's in this this general uh, sort of uh, zone. I wanted to mention a movie I watched that I don't know if any of you have seen. Has anyone here seen The Soldier by James Glickenhaus? No, no. It's by the. This is the guy who did the Exterminator, the exploitation movie with uh, Robert Ginty. Uh, apparently, it's kind of like a bad Death Wish, and this is a movie that I highly recommend because the plot is something I've never thought of before, which is that rogue KGB agents. This is the high. Is like in the seventies. Rogue KGB agents, uh, it's like steal a nuke and say that they're going to blow up Saudi Arabia unless the United States goes to war with Israel. And then the United States does go to war with Israel because they don't want the oil to get blown up. Um, and then Tell there's like more. a secret... There's what? like a, 
there's a secret CIA agent called the soldier who is like cartoonishly powerful. And it's just like, they're like, after the Bay of Pigs, we, we got, got a guy who, you know, would make sure bad stuff wouldn't happen and he can do anything he wants, which is like the opposite of what you would do if there was a thing that got out of control, you'd like be more top down centralized, but he's called the soldier and he's playing by Ken wall and he, um, he fixes everything and it's really, really, it's not a terrible movie, but it's really, really dumb. And the only, the only demand the terrorists have so that they won't blow up the oil, which means the U.S. won't have to go to war against Israel, is that Israel withdraws from the West Bank. That's all they want. And the whole movie, everyone's like, we, well, we, are, we can't do that. And it's just like an absolute non-negotiable, non-negotiable thing that n- cannot happen. And everything flows from that. And there's a scene where I remember Will, I think we watched Tenet and there was that yeah. line where he's like, uh, this super bomb will blow up everything. And the woman is like, oh, she goes, my even son? my son, even my son. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. There, Robert Pattinson explains, he explains that like, uh, if Kenneth Branagh is allowed to do this, it will instantly like, just like negate reality. Like everything that's yeah. ever existed or ever will exist will just cease to, it will be nothing. And Elizabeth Becky's character is like, even my son. That was a remake of this scene where it's a really long, like lazy Susan um, table shot where the entire the entire Israeli leadership, now that they know, you know, they're being asked to withdraw from the West Bank and are going to get nuked by the U.S. instead of doing that. They're talking about what to do. And uh, a guy says, so what could this um, bomb do? And then another person says it would blow up. Uh, it would blow up, a, 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 it would make, be a nuclear explosion in the Middle East and destroy Saudi Arabia and its oil. And someone says, what would that mean? And it's just like, <laughs> it, would, it would do that. It would blow up the country and then there'd be no oil. And it's just, it's like, this is the top brass of Israel. And uh, then in the finale, the Israelis set up a ramp so the soldier can get to 88 miles per hour and jump over the Berlin Wall into the, quote, <laughs> Russian side of the what? city. Uh, <laughs> and then it ends with a freeze frame on the Statue of Liberty with like br- Breakfast Club music playing, um, that, which is wait, 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 what okay, year is so this? yeah, I'm gonna. So put- it's a 1982. It's 1982. Uh, it's really fun. It's called The Soldier, and I will say the one really cool part of it is it's it's a Tangerine Dream soundtrack, and uh, okay. they do a really great job. So that well, part is basically holding up the entire movie. Well, this is a, I will I will put the, the Soldier is jumping to the top of my queue, but you you give us a perfect segue to uh, to go out on actually. Mm-hmm. So yeah, well it's been a it's been a mega long episode today, and uh, it could be no it could be no way else when the Blowback Boys are in the cut. But you mentioned the uh, the Tangerine Dream soundtrack for the Soldier. I would mm-hmm. like to mention the Brendan James soundtrack for Blowback Season Two, and we are going to play out with the ori- an original score written by Brendan James. This is but one track on what will be an original score album to Blowback mm-hmm. Season Two. This is Brendan yes. James doing his absolute best John Carpenter impression. And I say that with like the utmost regard for both you and John Carpenter. This Thank is you. Jupiter Missiles by Brendan James from the soundtrack to Blowback Season 2. It's about Cuba this time. All right, <laughs> gentlemen, till next time. Bye. For many peoples, these were the first gods. The greatest of the deities, the king of all gods, Jupiter. Jupiter.